Hello, you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelly. This is The Wrap-Up, your fortnightly dose of news from around the world. It is indeed. And Kelly, look, I've got to confess, I actually found it really hard to choose what stories to focus on this week, just because there was so much going on in the news. Oh, definitely. So this week we'll be focusing on some long-running political stories involving major countries, which is a bit of a change for regular wrap-up listeners. We'll be talking about Ireland, Israel, the US and China. Let's get started. In many parts of the world, most COVID restrictions are gone. But in China, this remains the strategy. Lockdowns such as this one in Shanghai, and any change of course is being resisted. If we chose to lay down now, our efforts will have come to nothing. We unswervingly insist on zero COVID. Josh, have you heard about China's zero COVID strategy? I have heard about it, and I've got to say, it's actually really surprising to me that two years on from the start of the pandemic, China is still aiming to completely eradicate the virus, especially given most of the world has just seemed to let COVID rip. That's right, Josh. I mean, China is still tackling COVID-19 outbreaks in the same way they approached the very first Wuhan outbreak. China is probably the only country in the world right now actively pursuing a zero COVID strategy. The goal is to have no COVID cases at all in a country of 1.4 billion people. Most recently, we've seen around 340 million people in at least 46 cities across China undergo some form of lockdown. And most of our listeners would have heard about the extraordinary Shanghai lockdown, which has ticked over five weeks. Shanghai feels like the world's largest prison. Outside several apartment compounds, fences going up. At a building where residents have been locked down for two weeks, they shout, we only want supplies. Why are you beating people? At night, the echoes of people crying out from their windows for help. China is tightening its strict zero COVID rules to contain what is now the country's worst outbreak ever. Mm, That all sounds incredibly intense, but is it working? Are they driving cases down? Of course, the zero COVID strategy has undoubtedly helped to reduce cases and deaths. From WHO statistics, the death rate has only been around 0.013%, which is incredibly low. But of course, living under such an extreme lockdown has other very real, very human costs. Chinese businesses are warning of the severe impact of Shanghai's prolonged lockdown. Shipping giants are also warning that the Shanghai lockdown has snarled up the world's busiest container port. Shanghai is, as you know, one of China's biggest economic centres, and the shutdown of Shanghai's factories has meant that millions of people have been out of work for over a month. In combination with food shortages and overwhelmed health services, you can only imagine how frustrated Shanghai's residents are feeling. This has all culminated in a very unusual social media campaign sparked by a video called Voices of April. Yeah, I saw some headlines about this video, Voices of April. I must admit, it's certainly unusual to see a video campaign like this blow up in China, especially given its strict internet censorship. 
So can you tell us more about it? What is this video about and why is it proved so popular? Well, if you watch the video, Josh, you'll see aerial shots of Shanghai with audio recordings of distressed Shanghainese citizens. It includes stories like sick elderly people not being allowed to go to hospital. And children in quarantine centers who have been separated from their parents. And yeah, you're right, it's very surprising how this video has managed to get through China's very sophisticated censoring systems, which has been nicknamed the Great Firewall. So I found out that social media censorship in China is very much reliant on human censors. It could be that the staff themselves who have watched this video have felt so personally affected by it that they couldn't find it in themselves to take it down. Or the sheer volume and speed at which the video was being reposted by different users could mean that the staff simply couldn't keep up. And I think it's really telling that in the past month, more Chinese citizens have attempted to breach the Great Firewall to access platforms like Twitter. So that seems to indicate quite a lot of dissent across China. Does that spell some sort of danger for Xi Jinping and his rule? President Xi has been doing his best to stay as far away from Shanghai's outbreak as possible. He gave no public speeches about COVID-19 outbreaks across China, and he never directly addressed Shanghai's residents as they entered and endured lockdown. But as much as campaigns like the Voices of April are unprecedented and unusual in Chinese politics, we can't deny that President Xi still has an iron grip on Chinese politics and is still very likely to win the elections that are coming up at the end of the year. So the only impact we may see from videos and campaigns like Voices of April is that it's going to be increasingly harder to justify the zero COVID strategy going forward. We have huge breaking news tonight, and I can't even believe I'm going to tell you what I'm about to tell you. Politico has obtained what they say is an initial draft majority opinion written by Justice Alito showing the Supreme Court striking down Roe versus Wade. As you just heard there, the U.S. Supreme Court made international headlines last week after it was revealed the court intends to abolish the right to get an abortion in America. On Wednesday, a draft judgment was leaked showing that the court's Republican-aligned justices plan to overturn a case known as Roe v. Wade. And that's the case that originally legalized abortion. Let me just read you the draft. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. Now, this is a massive moment in US history. First of all, it'll take away a right that American women have had for nearly 50 years. The Supreme Court has never taken away a constitutional right before. And second, it's the first time in the court's history that a draft decision has been leaked to the public. So it wasn't surprising then that the leak set off somewhat of a political firestorm. Democrats, who largely support the right to an abortion, slammed the court. How dare they? 
How dare they tell a woman what she can do and cannot do with her own body? One of the worst, most damaging decisions in modern history. Republican leaders who largely oppose abortion celebrated the decision. This is a great victory. Uh, it's a great victory for God and the unborn who have been innocently slain. The court should tune out the bad faith noise and feel completely free to do their jobs. The leak also sparked protests all around the US. You don't care if people die. Pro-life is alive. You don't care if people die. Wow, that is big news. So why is the Supreme Court wanting to abolish the right to get an abortion? Surely a right that's been in place for half a century would be largely untouchable. Yeah, you'd think so, especially given roughly 70% of Americans support abortion rights. However, conservative religious leaders have long opposed abortion on moral grounds, and they've been lobbying Republican leaders to restrict access to abortion for decades. And in 2016, these religious leaders agreed to support Donald Trump, but only if he promised to restrict abortion. And Trump agreed to do that. Unborn children have never had a stronger defender in the White House. While president, he nominated three ultra-conservative judges to the Supreme Court, which in turn gave the Republicans a majority and the means to abolish abortion rights. So I know that this leaked document is only a draft decision, but... Has there been any news reports about what potential impact it could have if this was the final decision? Yeah, look, you're right there. It is only a draft. But presuming that this draft reflects the final decision, there will be major consequences for American women. So the decision would, of course, remove the national right to abortion, and it would allow each US state to decide whether to criminalise abortion or not. And about half of US states have said that they will indeed ban or severely restrict abortion, with penalties ranging up to 10 years in jail. In response, pro-abortion groups have said that they'll find ways to secretly provide abortions to women who live in states where the procedure is banned. And that includes sending disguised abortion kits via post and even installing abortion clinics on boats so that women can sail to international waters where the abortions can be performed legally. This really sounds like something out of a dystopian novel. Yeah, it does. And what's more, the consequences actually don't end there. There are also implications for other rights in the US. Legal experts say there is clear concern for other freedoms related to marriage, sexuality and family life, including birth control and same-sex marriage. Those two rights are also based on the same part of the Constitution as the right to abortion. And if the court decides that the Constitution can't support abortion, lawyers say it's very likely that these other rights may also be abolished too. And then there's also the potential for the decision to have global ramifications for women's rights. What do you mean by that? Well, the US Supreme Court's decision to legalise abortion in Roe v Wade inspired similar decisions by courts in other countries, like Mexico and Colombia. Colombia has now become the latest country in Latin America to expand access to abortion. The country's highest court voted on Monday to legalize the procedure until the 24th. 
There are concerns that those decisions, which were decided on very similar grounds, may indeed now be vulnerable too. And what's more, American conservatives have said that they'll now turn their attention to campaigning against abortion in other countries. And the UN has warned that this forms part of a growing pushback against women's rights around the world. So the Supreme Court's decision is likely to have practical and symbolic implications for America and the wider world. We can expect a final outcome in the last few weeks of June, so you'll be sure to hear a lot more about it. For our next story, Josh, we're heading to Israel, which has dominated quite a few headlines in recent months. Tensions are rising after the deadliest wave of Palestinian terror attacks inside Israel in years. Now, there have been scuffles at the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in occupied East Jerusalem. Tel Aviv claims that it carried out massive missile strikes inside the Gazan territory. Amidst everything that is going on, there was a particularly noteworthy decision by Israel's High Court last week on the controversial settlement of the West Bank. After a two decades long legal battle, a thousand Palestinians from eight villages in the occupied southern West Bank could be facing eviction thanks to a ruling by Israel's Supreme Court on Thursday. This decision focuses on only 3,000 hectares in an area called Masafa Yatta. Okay, so what's so contentious about Masafa Yatta that led it all the way to Israel's High Court? This particular region forms 60% of the West Bank territory under Israeli military rule. The Palestinian Authority, of course, wants the West Bank to form the main part of their future state. And these 3,000 hectares were designated as Firing Zone 918 in the 1980s. In 1981, the Israeli government declared the area a, quote, military firing zone. And this led to the drawn-out court battle over whether the Palestinians who had been living there when Israel made this declaration were, quote, permanent residents of the area or not. In court, Israel argued that the villages were not permanent residents of the area before the 1980s, meaning that they had no rights to stay on the land. This has placed at least 1,000 Palestinians at risk of homelessness and displacement if Israel decides to evict them again. I can only imagine how those Palestinians must be feeling at the moment, but tell me, does this have any wider ramifications? Well, it's definitely not just about these 12 villages, Josh. 18% of the West Bank has been declared similarly as firing zones since the 1970s. And this decision comes at the same time as an announcement by Israel's interior minister to advance plans for the construction of 4,000 settler homes in the West Bank. Interestingly, Israel's close ally, the US, opposes the expansion of settlement in the West Bank. It diminishes the possibility of an eventual two-state solution in Israel and Palestine, which the US and its allies, like Australia, supports. So now that the High Court has said that the evictions are legal, what could happen next? It's hard to say, but things could get very, very tense, just as an example of what kind of reaction eviction orders have evoked in the past, Josh. You may remember that in May 2021, Israeli forces and Hamas militants engaged in 11 days of armed conflict in the Gaza Strip that resulted in hundreds of deaths and accusations of war crimes. 
part of the spark that lit the flame were eviction orders in Sheikh Jarrah, which is a predominantly Arab neighborhood in East Jerusalem. So will history repeat itself? I mean, we certainly hope not, but in combination with the news all through April on violence in the West Bank following clashes between Israeli police and Palestinian worshippers, this decision could very well escalate things further. They sense a shift in the governance of Northern Ireland, a political earthquake for the United Kingdom. The result raises the prospect of a vote on Irish unity. Kelly, for our final story, we're going to go to Northern Ireland, where there was a big development over the weekend. The territory, which is part of the UK, held elections to determine who would lead its local parliament. Some of the most important and consequential elections this time are actually happening in Northern Ireland. Voters there choosing the 90 members of the Northern Irish Assembly. And the results were extraordinary. Sinn Féin, a party that wants Northern Ireland to leave the UK and merge with Southern Ireland, won the most seats. Today ushers in a new era, which I believe presents us all with an opportunity to reimagine relationships in this society on the basis of fairness, on the basis of equality, and on the basis of social justice. It's the first time in Northern Ireland's history that a pro-independence party has won, and it's all the more significant given that Sinn Féin was once an illegal political party. Wow, this is a groundbreaking election. So can you help us understand why this is such a big shift in Northern Irish politics? And tell me a bit more about why Sinn Féin was outlawed. Sure. So, look, to understand just how significant this win is, we need to go all the way back to 1919. And at that time, the whole of Ireland was controlled by England. But there was this growing desire for independence, mostly among Irish Catholics, who resented being ruled by an Anglican country like England. So in 1919, Catholic forces created a military group called the IRA and declared independence. And that in turn sparked a war between the IRA and English troops that lasted nearly three years. All wars are dreadful, but civil wars are unspeakable. So bitter and divisive was the Irish Civil War that the country has never since seemed fully able to come to terms with it. Eventually, a peace agreement was reached, and that peace agreement required Ireland to be split into two, with an independent Southern Ireland and an English-controlled Northern Ireland that would be part of the wider UK. In view of the agreement signed yesterday between the representatives of the British government and the Irish delegation of plenipotentiaries, His Majesty has approved of the release forthwith of all persons now interned under Regulation 14B of the Restoration of Order in Ireland Regulations. However, the peace deal didn't fix the tensions. Catholics in Northern Ireland still wanted full independence, while Anglicans in Northern Ireland wanted to remain part of the UK. And both sides frequently clashed, sparking a civil war that lasted for 30 years. The death toll in Northern Ireland in 1972 reached 467, the worst year of slaughter since the present emergency first spewed violence across the province five years ago. That civil war only came to an end in 1998, when a further peace treaty was signed, 
Good evening. A historic day at Stormont. After two years of talks and after a generation of bloodshed and decades of division and acrimony, an agreement that unites loyalist and republican, unionist and nationalist leaders in a wide-ranging historical accord. And while things have been relatively peaceful since then, you can still see tensions between pro-independence and pro-UK forces. For example, there are two main political parties, the DUP, which is a conservative pro-UK party, and Sinn Féin, a left-leaning pro-independence party. It was actually originally part of the IRA, the Catholic military group that sparked both wars. And that's why Sinn Féin has been outlawed in previous decades, Kelly. Because of that, most Irish voters have never fully trusted Sinn Féin. So for the past century, Northern Ireland has been ruled solely by pro-UK parties. But, of course, that has now changed. So why is there a rise in support for Sinn Féin? Well, the pro-UK parties have been plagued by infighting for some time, particularly over Brexit, and the last few governments have been very unstable. Sinn Féin was able to capitalise on this, and it ran a really strong campaign that resonated with the Northern Irish population. So now that they've won, there's bound to be some huge consequences for Northern Ireland. Firstly, is there going to be a vote on Northern Ireland leaving the UK? Well, Sinn Féin leaders have said that they want there to be a vote, that they want it to take place in the next five years. So it could be any time during that period. But all of this actually presumes, Kelly, that Sinn Féin will be able to form a functioning government in the first place, and that's not guaranteed. Oh dear, that is not what Northern Ireland needs. So why is that? Well, the 1998 peace treaty requires Northern Ireland's government to be made up of the parties that win first and second place. And guess who won second place? It was the DUP, Sinn Féin's arch-rival. The DUP have said that they will agree to join a coalition with Sinn Féin, but only on one condition. If the British government agrees to renegotiate the Brexit deal with the EU. While the present protocol arrangements remain in place, it cannot be business as usual for North-South relations. The DUP will immediately withdraw from the structures of Strand 2 of the Belfast Agreement relating to North-South arrangements. I thought our Brexit days were over, Josh. What is happening now? Yeah, well, I don't think they're over at all, Kelly. So, you see, the current deal created a trade border between Northern Ireland and the UK which the DUP, as a pro-UK party, doesn't like. It wants there to be no barriers between Northern Ireland and the UK. The only problem is, is that the EU opposes changing the deal, considering it took nearly four years to negotiate in the first place. In fact, the EU has actually threatened to impose trade sanctions if the deal is altered. Serious consequences. That's what the EU says the UK would face if it triggers Article 16. So that means there's somewhat of a stalemate. The EU is refusing to change the rules. The DUP is refusing to join the Irish government if the rules aren't changed. And all of that could leave Northern Ireland without a government for some time. And that is a problem. Not only could it damage Northern Ireland's already struggling economy, but it could also reopen some of the old wounds between pro-UK and pro-independence organisations. And I think it's safe to say 
very few people want to see a repeat of Ireland's bloody and violent past. Well, that brings us to the end of this fortnight's edition of The Wrap-Up. Next week will be the third episode in our in-depth season on technology. Rhiannon will be chatting to experts about the way AI, robots and new technologies are changing the way wars and border conflicts are fought, including what wars could look like in the future. Until then, follow our Instagram page for news updates, quizzes, and bonus content. You can also get in touch with us and suggest an episode topic via our website. All the links are in the episode description below. We'll see you all in a fortnight. Bye.